At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Here we go, boys. Go. Ooh, I love that sound. This is a good one. Welcome to the Full Scale Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Johnson. Today's episode is being brought to you by Boss Ammunition. Boss Bismuth shot shells are a huge step up from steel ammunition that is on the market today. Um, I'm not making this up. There's plenty of Bismuth ballistics. You can Google, check them out, get your hands on some Boss Bismuth. If you've never tried shooting waterfowl, ducks, and geese with Bismuth ammunition, it's something definitely worthwhile that you should check out. Today we're going to be doing an episode without Dale, just me today, riding solo, and we're going to be doing a segment I like to call Keeping Tabs. So this is a good opportunity for me to clear out some of the tabs on my iPhone and a good opportunity to uh, read some interesting waterfowl um, read some interesting waterfowl um, articles that seem to come across my desk here. And uh, yeah, let's just jump right into it. Um, and I'm going to pull up my safari, see what I got. I have had a couple of interesting articles come across here. Like, I just got this. Uh, this is from Europe. I'm subscribed to this. I don't know how the hell I got on the subscription list. But they come out with this thing called the Goose Bulletin. The Goose Bulletin is the official bulletin of the Goose Specialist Group of the Wetlands International and IUCN. It's something out of Europe. I couldn't even tell you what IUCN even means, but these people put out a bunch of really cool goose stuff, goose data, maps, um, and in the, the Goose Bulletin issue 28, which came out November of 22, they're talking about, like, uh, let's see here, they have the Goose Specialist Group meeting, which is going to be in Mongolia, and they're going to go check out a bunch of bar-headed goose, like, breeding areas and all that, but that's not what I wanted to talk about in this article. They had in the Goose Bulletin, hey, they got a ton of really cool GPS data here. They have an article in here called, um, Was the Lesser Snow Goose Once Widespread in Eurasia? So... 
This is just a really cool article. It is common knowledge that the lesser snow goose is mainly a species from North America, they say Northern America, where they breed in the Arctic tundra and winter in more moderate southern parts of the continent. In Eurasia, snow geese only breed in the south, in northeastern Siberia on Wrangell Island. If you ever hear somebody say like, we got a snow goose band and it was from Russia, there that was from Wrangell Island, which is exactly what this, um, what this issue is saying here. I hear that all the time, though. Like, we got a snow goose band from Russia. You got a snow goose band from Wrangell Island. It's basically Alaska. So, um, let's see here. I just lost my fucking spot. But there is information from historical sources indicating that this geographical distribution might only be rather recent phenomenon. It is only since the beginning of the internationally coordinated large-scale water bird censuses and bird marking programs in the middle of the 20th century that we have gained more or less reliable information about numbers and range in different goose species. Until then, there were only more or less flowery descriptions or rough estimates of numbers of water birds, countless or enormous masses in quotation marks, and there were only fragmentary sources, historical sources, and sometimes they are difficult to interpret. For instance, historic authors frequently write about the snow goose, in quotation, and that they saw them during their winter migration in Germany, and that they covered entire regions. But it is still unclear whether it was really a white snow goose in all cases. It could also often have been a popular name for all kinds of migratory geese that came with the snow. Keeping these caveats in the back of our mind, I here try to reconstruct the history of the lesser snow goose in Eurasia. So this is just a cool study. Uh, data from literature. The oldest literature sources about snow geese wintering in Western Europe originated from At Tara Tuushi, the 10th century, Friedrich II of Hohenstaufen and Albertus Magnus. So this just goes on like this. It's got all these um, 10th century. Here's one from 1098 to 1179. All these historical examples of... Um, Literature that features descriptions of snow geese being in Europe. They've got, uh, yeah, here's Friedrich II stuff. He's even got a, uh, a drawing of a snow goose. That is for sure a snow goose. Pink feet, pink legs, black wingtips, white body. And um, here they got Albertus Magnus, who lived from 1200 to 1280. Conrad, Conrad Gessner, 1516 to 1565. Which I always think this is super fascinating to talk about the historical abundances of waterfowl in there where, you know, like, where did birds used to go? Like, we, in our lifetimes, in our hunting careers, not let alone our lifetimes, if we just hunt for 20 years or 25 years, we can notice a shift of flyways of certain species in a certain direction. I mean, like, more, most recently what comes to mind is maybe the shift, the shift of snow geese from the Texas coast to the Arkansas prairies. Or um, some people love, this, this thing loves to get spit about, is like, I think the migration's moving west. If you're a Minnesota guy, you absolutely love to say that the migration is shifting west. Whether that's true or not, it's something that everybody kind of experiences once they hunt for a long period of time. They have a feeling or something that the flyways are shifting. Well, how have they shifted, like, beyond our lifetimes, I think is kind of an interesting idea. Like, what have they shifted like in the last thousand years? And uh, how would you ever know that? 
Uh, and one thing I always think about too is um, there was an ice age that had basically a sheet of ice, you know, 12,800 years ago that stretched damn near down to Iowa. So did these Arctic breeding geese, let's say like snow geese and cackling geese, did they breed like in Iowa like 12,800 years ago? I always think that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. And, um, you know, like I wonder if where, where would the prairie nesting ducks that nest now in Prairie Canada when that was under a mile sheet, a mile thick sheet of ice, where would they have nested? I mean, there's some like they call Arkansas like the Grand Prairie. Hell, you could have had like mallards nesting in Arkansas like when there was the last ice age. I would have no idea of that. That's just off the top of my dome. Anyways, this article goes on. It's a pretty interesting article. They've got just absolutely tons of different um, sources going all the way up to the early 1900s. Let's look at uh, let's look at results. Nah, fuck it. Let's look at something else. That's a pretty cool article. Boop. I'm gonna delete it. I read enough of it by now. Um, this one I just got today, and it. It, it made me think about some interesting stuff, too. The BASC lifts call for restraint on shooting waterfowl in the UK. The BASC is the British Association for Shooting and Conservation. This is a very short article. It just said, Following a break in the freezing weather condition, the BASC has lifted its call for restraint in the shooting of waterfowl in the UK. The decision has made been made following three consecutive thaw days across England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, allowing for the ground to unfreeze and feeding and roosting opportunities to open back up for waterfowl. People who shoot are being asked to continue with restraint, responsible behavior, whether ducks, geese, wading birds, and are still having trouble feeding or roosting because of remaining snow or ice. James Green, BASC's head of wildfowling, said as a result of the improved weather conditions over the last few days, the call for voluntary restraint of shooting waterfall on the 14th of December has been lifted. However, hunters should continue to be on the lookout for unusual movements, blah, blah, blah. It's basically the whole article. So there's this thing called the British Association for Shooting and Conservation that has put out a call to all waterfowl hunters in the UK to have voluntary restraint, which I think is an interesting term because the only time we hear that term in North America would be in the shooting of hen mallards, basically. Not just mallards, but the shooting of hens in general. People like to have voluntary restraint, which I think also is an interesting topic of uh, hunters setting their own rules, which is basically how all hunting rules started out in um, like the first people to make rules in the United States for waterfowl hunting was actually hunting clubs. There's a really interesting uh, Ducks Unlimited podcast about this. Um, came out in early November where a guy's talking about the old, like, uh, the, the old hunting clubs and how they would have limits of 50 per day or 100 per day or only 100 wood ducks per day in August. And, uh, yeah, cause they used to shoot wood ducks like in August back in the day in, uh, in like Arkansas and Louisiana, but only 50. So it's just interesting to think about that. All right. Boop. Delete. Let's see what else we got in here. Um, this is a study that got quite a bit of, uh, media attention. This is on fizz.org 
and the article is called Fireworks Have Long-Lasting Effects on Wild Birds. Scientists at the Max, Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior in Konstanz, Germany, and the Netherlands Institute of Ecology, GPS tracked Arctic migratory geese in Germany, Denmark, and the Netherlands over the New Year period to examine the long-term impact of fireworks. Their study appears in Conservation Letters. So this is the Max Planck Institute, which does a ton of waterfowl um, research over in Europe. And um, they have, I think it says, 347 geese with GPS transmitters on them that they tracked specifically on New Year's Eve to see if the fireworks would fuck them up. So, <laughs> and this got a lot of, um, this got a lot of media attention. It popped up on my Google alerts many times. If you just punch in like, uh, fireworks, long lasting effects on wild birds. All right. Movement data from 347 geese showed that on New Year's Eve, birds suddenly leave their sleeping sites and fly to new areas further away from human settlements. The disturbed birds rested two hours less and flew further, sometimes up to 500 kilometers nonstop, than they did on nights without fireworks. The unusual behaviors didn't end with the celebrations. For all studied days after the New Year, geese spent more time foraging and never returned to their original sleeping sites. Every year, fireworks are set off around the world to welcome the new year. This nighttime spectacle of light, color, and sound is enjoyable for humans, but less so for animals. As anyone with a pet knows, the combination of loud bangs, bright lights, and smoke can provoke fear and disorientation. In Western European countries, the New Year's Eve disturbance is exacerbated by the availability of recreational fireworks, which the public are allowed to purchase and set off for a certain number of hours before or after midnight, blah, 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 blah. During the last decade, studies in Europe have begun to uncover the negative impact of fireworks on wild birds. A study from 2011 used weather data to show that thousands of birds in the Netherlands erupted into the air at midnight on New Year's Eve when fireworks began, but their research has yet to create a clear picture of it, blah, blah, blah. Geese with GPS trackers. Using GPS trackers, a team of scientists has quantified for the first time the effects of widespread New Year's fireworks on the behavior of individual birds, GPS tracked were collected for 347 individuals in the 12 days before and the 12 days after New Year's for eight consecutive years. Oh, God damn. So they did this for eight years. Um, with each individual tracked for an average of two years. Okay. So it wasn't just like 347 birds that all lived for eight solid years. They collected 347 individuals over eight years, not all at one time, and with each individual tracked for an average of two years. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense. And they have four species of geese on this. They got greater white fronts, barnacles, pink foots, and beans. All are Arctic migratory species, which spend their winters resting and feeding in northern Germany, Denmark, and the Netherlands. Um, speaking of Denmark, uh, check out the Dave Smith decoys hunting podcast. They've got a uh, hunting Steph on there talking about Denmark goose hunting. It's awesome. Sidetracked. But the study's finding reveals significant changes to the wintering behaviors of all species in response to the fireworks. Normally geese return to the same water body for several nights, resting on the surface and moving very little, thus saving essential energy. But during the night of new year's Eve, when the fireworks were being lit, geese left their sleeping sites more often 
flew on average 5 to 16 kilometers further and 40 to 150 meters higher than on previous nights. It's shocking to see how much further birds are flying on nights with fireworks compared to other nights, says Andrea Kolch, a research scientist at the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior and first author on the study. Some individuals flew hundreds of kilometers over a single night, covering distance they would normally would only fly during migration. So that means that the fireworks are on some geese, like almost like made them have like a little mini migration. Not even mini, but like they moved the fuck out. That's kind of crazy. Um, let's see if there's any like maps or anything. Eh, not on this particular article. Um, in the final year of the study, the team were offered a unique opportunity to control the effects of the fireworks. The pandemic lockdown of 2020-2021 led to widespread firework ban and greatly reduced levels of disturbance. Despite this, the effects of increased flight activity, distance, and altitude were still present on New Year's Eve in two of the four goose species. This suggests that even small amounts of fireworks will change the behaviors of geese in ways that might reduce their chances of survival, at least in severe winters. In order to provide a safe space for the birds, recreational fireworks should be banned from areas near national parks, bird sanctuaries, and other important resting areas. Okay. I always think it's interesting just to, I mean, disturbances on geese. Like, how how dramatic are they really? It's so hard, like, if you are in an area with... I, I, I think it's relative. If you're in an area where you have a couple different roosts around your town, and those roosts are between four to... 700 geese that let, let's just say are a half hour drive around your town. Now you got five groups of people hunting them. And after a couple of weeks, that four to 700 geese, um, you've killed 150 of them just two weeks of early September. That's a huge impact on geese. Like, and it's relatively massive in terms of how much casualty percentage are in the flocks. I feel like that's a massive disturbance. Otherwise, you'll get spots like Fergus Falls that have like 100,000 geese there. But how many of them are actually dying? As a percentage, it's much, much lower. But it, another thing about Fergus Falls areas is how would you ever know if the disturbed geese actually left maybe overnight and weren't just replaced by other migrating geese come in it, like coming in? Because areas that hold that many birds, they, it's not a static amount of 100,000 geese that all migrate in. You got 100,000 geese until they begin trickling out. It's a constant like railway station of birds going in and out at all times. So you might have fresh birds coming in and disturbed birds moving out. And as a hunter, as a human being, and as a guy without 100,000 GPS transmitters on individual birds, we would have absolutely no idea of kind of the fascinating thing about um, thinking about this stuff. But here's some actual data of birds that are just getting fucked up from fireworks. They don't like it. They get the hell out of there. That's a very, very interesting article. Let's see what else we got going on in here. What would permanent... This caught my attention, but I didn't think it would be that interesting. What would permanent daylight savings time mean to duck hunters? A duck hunter's take on the Sunshine Protection Act. This is in Wildfowl Magazine. You can look it up. I'm going to go through this uh, as briefly as I can because I don't think it's going to be that fruitful. Last March, with bombs falling in Europe and the park, Ryan's tr 
and pork rinds trading at $82 per barrel. The men and women of the legislative branch, blah, blah, blah. The Sunshine Protection Act's co-sponsored by Senators Marco Rubio and Patty Murray would make daylight savings time permanent across the United States. If you haven't heard about that, there is a bill they're trying to make uh, get rid of all that hours change and stuff. So how would that affect duck hunters is what they're saying. Must be noted that this bill was approved by the Senate, but is yes to pass has yet to pass the House. And with the most noble representatives preoccupied with trying to remember the password for their burner Twitter accounts. Okay, cool, cool. Furthermore, public enthusiasm. Permanent daylight time would not mean flip flop crop tops in February. Right, there's a lot of silliness in this article. As a duck hunter, however, my opinion. My view on this proposal has not wavered. I'm firmly unsure, and that's because this proposed change forces us followers to reckon head-on with the polarity of needs that confronts us every autumn. Blind time versus sleep. I'm sure you can relate to this tension. It's November. This magazine is in your hands. There's a good chance you're a duck hunter, and if so, you are clinically sleep-deprived. There's no way not to be during the duck season. Your big game buddies know nothing of this. Okay, so you might just have to get up earlier in the fall when we do that fall back. Okay, like I said, maybe I shouldn't have even gone there on that wildfowl article. Maybe that guy shouldn't have even written it. Let's see what else I got in my... Uh... <laughs> Let's see what else I got in here. This is a pretty cool article. From Field and Stream. It is uh, Tennessee Hunter... Goddamn pop-ups, I can't read this. Tennessee Hunter shoots 33-year-old Sandhill Crane. Austin Davis took the impressively old banded bird on a do-it-yourself hunt earlier this year. And uh, they've got some great pictures of the band on this uh, Field and Stream article. Again, it's called Tennessee Hunter Shoots 33-Year-Old Sandhill Crane. That crane was born in the fucking 80s. Austin Davis recently bagged this bir bird hunting trophy. This bird hunting trophy of a lifetime when he shot a sandhill crane that was banded in 1989, one of the oldest specimens on record. When I looked at the band, it didn't have a phone number or a website on it. I knew it was an old one, the 20-year-old, 8-year-old Davis told Field and Stream. That's, he must know something about bands. Like, if you see that, you're like, huh, there's no website, no phone number. This dude knows what he's doing. I reported it and found out the bird was older than I am. I freaked out. Who knows what this bird saw in its life and how many hunters or predators it had to avoid before I shot it. Davis of Lebanon, Tennessee, drew his two-crane permit this year after missing out the year before. He had drawn in previous seasons but had always used an outfitter for crane hunts. This year, he and his best friends, Brad Buchanan, decided on a do-it-yourself public land adventure about 14,000 cranes winter on the Hiwassee Refuge on Lake Chickamauga in south southeastern Tennessee. Outfitters have all the crop fields leased up around here, but we thought we could get into a public area between the refuge and the crop fields and decoy some cranes ourselves, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. They've got another picture of it on his boat. He's got, looks like they've shot four cranes, and they got this one. It's, it's double-banded, so it looks like it's got a rivet band on its lower leg, and up on its tarsal bone, it's got another band on it. Oh, that is fucking sick <laughs> can you imagine you know it, it brings into question too um not just like i mean if that bird made it to 33 years old like is that rare like there's not that many banded cranes out there or that many banded cranes getting shot every year to like i mean as a waterfowl hunter like we know and if somebody if you're a band enthusiast you tend to know like you're not gonna see a whole lot of giant honkers over like 
10 to 12 years old, that's going to be like your upper limits on your band. You shoot a 15-year-old giant hawk, you're like, holy fuck. Now, for smaller geese, you know, we can like start to stretch that up into the lower 20s, mid-20s. But we have these ideas, like a mallard. If you shoot a 10-year-old mallard, 12-year-old mallard, that's old. But is that old for a crane? I mean, I would assume so. But maybe there's just a fucking shitload of 30-year-old cranes out there. No idea. All right, let's see here. Here's another field and stream article. Bird flu kills 700. No, that ain't loading. Fuck it, we don't need to talk about bird flu and every time they fucking kills three to 500 birds. I mean, bird flu, we're, I'm keeping my eye on it and I have been reading quite a bit of articles about it. And uh, there have been some areas where there's been some pretty fucked up die-offs so far. Um, I know on earlier episodes of Waterfall Wednesday, me and Dale were talking like, I'm seeing multiple dozens in die-offs, maybe up to a couple hundred. But I said, you show me a a roost where it has 5,000 dead juvie snow geese in it, and I'm going to start thinking like, "Uh uh-oh, you know, this might start to affect... Our limits, our seasons, I mean, how bad is this going to get type of worries. I have not seen very many examples of that yet, but I've seen a couple. I've seen a couple now where they've had fucking crazy die-offs to the point where it's like, I hope I don't see many more, <laughs> you know? Like, at first I wasn't seeing it, and I'm like, you know, we shoot the shit out of these things with guns. Show me a fucking pile of dead ones. Show me a thousand dead ones, and I'll start getting worried. And then I did see it, and I'm like, show me a few more of those, and I'll start getting, you know, like, at, at when do we start getting worried about it? I'm not exactly sure. Um, let's see what else I got in here. I've got a bunch of regulations for places that I'm planning on going hunting. Um, <laughs> Texas, this is an interesting one. From the TexasFarmBureau.org, Texas Parks and Wildlife Division proposes potential changes to Texas hunting regulations. Guess what they're proposing? The first proposed change presented to the Texas Park and Wildlife Commission in early November was the statewide closure of the Light Goose Conservation Order. A conservation order is not a hunting season. It is a special management action needed to control certain wildlife populations when traditional management programs are unsuccessful in preventing an overabundance of the population. The Light Goose Conservation Order was a special amendment by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act that allows the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to authorize states to allow additional hunting opportunities. It was enacted in the 80s and 90s. There were concerns that increasing populations of snow geese and staging and breeding areas in Manitoba were going to cause an ecological collapse. At that time, it was thought that if we could improve the hunter success, we could actually decrease populations of light geese. That was the ultimate goal, Sean Oldenberger, TPWD Small Game Program Director, said. In 1980, there were 1.2 million light geese on the Texas coast. In the late 1990s, the conservation order was enacted. Then, in the early 2000s, there were about 500,000 light geese in Texas as geese chose other locations to winter, namely the Arkansas Alluvial Valley, as we talked about earlier on the podcast. Light geese population used to be low. We used to have high productivity. Now we have high populations with extremely low productivity. 
Oldenberger said, what we thought would control the populations has completely changed based on these population models. We've seen pretty much a crash in the reproduction in the last 10 to 15 years in the Canadian Arctic and subarctic. Oldenberger said, looking back, scientists grossly underestimated the snow goose population because it was difficult to inventory them at the time. He said experts also probably underestimated the carrying capacity of the area in Manitoba that caused the concerns in the 80s. That's just a small snapshot of one location that is not occurring across a large area or in the Canadian Arctic by any means, Oldenberger said. The conservation order didn't reduce adult light goose survival, which was its intent, so it could help control the population. Instead, adult light goose survival increased. The number of young geese in the population has declined. We thought we could control adult survival because we thought we had just a few million geese and we had a lot of hunters. As it turns out, we had a lot more geese and we weren't taking that large of a percentage, Oldenberger said. Really, the conservation order is not accomplishing the management objective it was set out to. The proposal... The proposed closure of the conservation order will be presented to the commission for their consideration in January. The commission could also consider the removal of the harvest information program, blah, 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 blah. So that is an extremely interesting um, article about Texas wanting. Now, they haven't done it yet because this is not coming up to they're going to propose it in January, but they're making moves to actually end the spring conservation season in Texas. And it's not based on less geese being in Texas, although let's face it, it probably is. It's not based on the bird flu at all, which is not mentioned in this article. It is based on a change in the theories of what of goose populations and how to control them and the overall severity of having so many geese in existence. Like he says here, that it was um, just a small snapshot of this area in Manitoba and not um, the whole Canadian Arctic and subarctic. So it's really just a, a changing theory about how to control light goose populations and saying we have a ton of adult geese out there now that are harder to hunt. They go up to the Arctic, they breed, all their kids get killed either by disease or by hunters, and we're not really reducing the population because all these adult breeding geese are basically living every year to go back to the Canadian Arctic and just lay more eggs for us to kill, which is super, it's super interesting. What, what if this state goes through with that? Could that mean other states start to have differing, um, start to agree with this and start to close snow goose hunting opportunities in the spring. I don't foresee that happening. Texas has also been um, kind of in a little bit of a controversial thing because last year they actually did reduce their, um, they reduced their um, uh, limits on snow geese from 20 to 10. And I think maybe I'm in, maybe I'm incorrect in this, but they might've reduced the number of days they allowed hunting of it. But um, that, that was talked about on a Ducks Unlimited podcast at that time when that happened too. And they had a federal, um, official on the Ducks Unlimited podcast. I wish I could remember the article, but they, he was basically saying like, this is insanity. What the hell is Texas doing? And he thought that they were doing this 
as to attract more snow geese back to Texas from the Arkansas alluvial valley in an effort to, uh, in actually in an effort to increase hunting opportunities in Texas by making Texas a more attractive state to snow geese. Anyways, that's in the Texas Agriculture Daily. It's called TPWD Proposes Potential Changes to Texas Hunting Regulations. Let's close that. Let's see if there's anything else in here. I've already been going for 30 minutes just rambling on. I think I do have a couple more interesting articles in here. Um, looking at, let's see here. Here's an interesting uh, article. Just Google whooping crane costumes. <laughs> I don't know why I was reading this, but uh, there, when whooping cranes were on extinction, I think they still might do this. There are captive breeding programs for whooping cranes to try to get their populations back up, but they do not want the birds to imprint on human beings in any way. So they the humans that are raising these whooping cranes wear completely white costumes and use like one arm as like the head of the mama whooping crane. And, uh, it, the pictures are fucking hilarious. If you look up, uh, <laughs> if you look up like whooping crane, like, uh, whooping crane costumes, like, and read and look through some of the images, it looks like just families of whooping cranes being raised by a Ku Klux Klansman. Uh, it's pretty awesome. So anyways, that's a tab that I have fucking open on my on my safari. What do I have here? Urban wildlife management planning process and conflict mitigation. A case study of Denver's Canada Goose Management Plan. I have not gone through this article at all. It is 118 pages long. Um, it's something like this. Maybe I'll just scroll through and uh, look at the pretty pictures. But something like this, if uh, is, I'm actually probably going to read a lot of this later on, just to see what they are doing for conflict. They've got ooh, they got pictures of goose poop in a park, and a bunch of graphs that I probably will never understand. Oh, pictures of densities of birds and where they're located. That's kind of interesting. Let's see what else I got up here. Um, honker hauler cart. I was looking at that, um, paying bills, schedule of events, something that was in RD News Now, Alberta and Prairie Provinces say proposed expanded firearms ban targets hunters and farmers. This is coming out of Canada, the provinces of Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba say they're united in opposing a federally proposed firearms ban. On November 22nd, the federal government moved to ban hundreds of new models of currently legally owned firearms and shotguns. Alberta claims the decision was made through last minute amendments to Bill C-21. Uh, this is something I'm not very educated on commenting about. One thing that I will give this this news source a little um, credit is if it's provinces and government officials themselves coming out and saying, hey, this could create a problem for our hunters. I think that is um, a lot more legitimate than a um, gun advocacy lobbying group saying, hey, they're going to come ban your guns. Please donate $50 now. There's a lot of that out there. If you try to follow, like, um, if you try to follow, like, it's it's very difficult to follow gun law 
because of the vested interest on both sides of fear-mongering and collecting donations from scared people. So one thing I, I, that, that caught my attention with this article was that the provinces, the, it starts out, the provinces of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba say they are united in opposing. So here we have actual government officials saying, hey, there could be some problems coming up with this bill, C-21 in Canada. It might be something to keep our eyes on or look into more. I'm just saying that's out there in the world, and it seems to be kind of like a legit concern from people looking out for their citizens. Anyways, that's in here. Wasika Water... Oh, I don't know if I've uh, brought this up on the... Here, here's another one from physics.org. This is a GPS neck collar study. Uh, this one also got an, a, a ton of press. It's a study, colon, Canada geese beat humans in long-standing territory battle. Canada geese collide with aircraft, intimidate unassuming joggers, and leave lawns and sidewalks spattered with prodigious piles of poop. They're widely considered nuisance bird, and municipalities invest considerable time and money into harassing geese to relocate the feisty flocks. Probably should just use fucking fireworks. But the new University of Illinois research shows standard goose harassment efforts aren't effective, especially in winter when the bird should be most susceptible to scare tactics. So this is a GPS neck, tra uh, neck collar transmitter study that um, was based out of, I think, Chicago, um, that Ryan Askren and uh, Ward, God, what's his name? Blah, blah, blah. This is, a, this, is a, this is a good one to look up. If you're just, this is a short and sweet little article. Yeah, fuck it. I'll just read it. Harassment is part of the energy equation. If a bird is hanging around Chicago in winter, it's probably not in good shape. It's cold and doesn't have a lot of food, says Mike Ward, professor of the Department of Natural Resource and Environmental Sciences at Illinois and co-author of the study. The goal of harassment is never to hurt the geese, but to get them to use up energy during an already tough season, forcing them to migrate to warmer climates. Unfortunately, we found that this doesn't happen in practice. The study isn't the first to find harassment doesn't work, but it is the first to explain why. The researchers use GPS transmitters with Fitbit-like movement trackers to learn where Canada geese go and how their behavior changes when they're harassed. Ward's doctoral student, Ryan Askren, now a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Arkansas Monticello, worked with USDA Wildlife Services personnel to harass Canada geese at Marquette Park near Midway Airport in Chicago. During the winters of 2017 and 2018, members of the research team walked or drove geese with clacking boards together. Did the geese leave? Yes, but when they returned to the but they returned to the area almost two times faster than on days when they weren't harassed and left the park on their own. When they're not being harassed, they're making the choice to leave the park because it's beneficial to them. There's a resource elsewhere they want to access, Askren says, whereas when we're harassing them, they probably have a biological reason to be there. There's some sort of resource, such as food or water, and they want to be there at that moment. When we harass them, it causes them to leave momentarily, but more than likely, they still have that drive to come back. So they're returning more quickly, whereas geese that leave in absence of harassment are staying away to make use of the resource elsewhere. Most harassed geese either moved elsewhere in the same park or were back within the hour. 
Those that did not leave went to commercial rooftops, rail yards, other parks, water treatment ponds, and sports field, not exactly migrating long distance away from the urban environment. As for the harassment draining energy reserves during a vulnerable time, Warden Askren didn't find much evidence for that in geese behavior. Harassed birds spent little more time flying in alert mode than geese that weren't harassed, but they spent just as much time foraging and resting, important factors in the energetic equation. I thought using these Fitbit-like devices on the neck collar was a creative way of understanding resting, flying, and foraging behaviors. And when Ryan was doing all this physical work to figure out the accelerometry data would tell us, I was very, very eager to see what the results were, Ward says. But when it was all analyzed, I was like, wow, that's not too exciting. Basically, when you harass, they fly a little bit more because you're scaring them, or they might be alert a little more, but it wasn't a fundamental difference. Although harassment didn't change geese behavior much, the research team noticed a pattern that could be exploited during the worst winter weather. If it was crazy cold or snowy, our colleagues did not go out to harass the geese, Ward says, but that's probably when you should harass them because the geese are the most stressed. If you look at their behavior, they're going to areas just to rest and essentially wait out the terrible weather. So if you could harass them during those really tough times, they'd probably have to leave the area because they wouldn't be able to find the resources they need to survive. Could the outcome have differed with another harassment method? The researchers say it's possible, but the methods showing the most promise don't usually go over well with the public. The literature says, suggests unless there's lethal aspect to harassment, unless there's a really have a strong fear that they're going to die or some sort of actual... Or, so, or some of them are actually dying, then most harassment methods just don't seem to be very effective. Lastly, the research team wondered if Chicago-based geese simply had acquired more grit than busy in the busy urban environment, making them less easily spooked because they had tracked these geese long-term for other studies. The researchers knew which geese were migrants from rural areas and which were longtime Chicago residents. As it turns out, neither group was particularly perturbed by the harassment. There's a couple more paragraphs here. Let's just leave it there. Um, anyways, guys, uh, that's going to do it. Oh, fuck. Let's see if there's just, I got a waffle recipe going on in there. I love waffles. Um, let's see what this is. Traditional goose, natureworldnews.com. Traditional geese beat humans in land, long standing territory battle. This is another article on the same, the exact same study. Like I said, that got a lot of, uh, that got a lot of, um, traction in the media let's end it there guys thank you very much for tuning in to waterfowl wednesday edition of the full scale outdoor podcast thank you very much to boss ammunition for sponsoring this podcast um i really encourage you guys to try that out i believe you will be happy with it um reach out to me if you guys want to hear anything on the podcast please check out the nick johnson signature series pacific calls short read canada goose call and if you're trying to get better at canada goose calling in general check out the goose tech app it's on all it's on uh in the app store and the google play store that's going to do it for me this week guys thank you very much we'll catch you next week Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. 
want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.